Amen. As the lights come up, would you find your listening guide? Open it up. You'll see the question we're going to answer today. Why does God allow suffering? It's a great question, and it is one of the harder ones to answer. It's one of the more personal ones that we all ask. Can I tell you a resource that my wife and I have enjoyed and found a lot of, a lot of truth in and a lot of encouragement in? If you're a reader, it's not a long book, small, but it's by M.R. Dahan, and he is the founder of the Radio Bible Class, which is now uh, Our Daily Bread Ministry. So if you ever read the Our Daily Bread, he was 60 years ago, he, he wrote the material of this book. This is a, a pastor's words from six decades ago that to me is some of the most profound and moving and encouraging words on suffering that are out there. And I'm going to read a quote from it later, but the book's called Broken Things, Why We Suffer. Broken Things, Why We Suffer. Um, I have had church members buy these, pass them out, give them out, and a huge encouragement. See, this question is the question we ask in tornadoes and hurricanes and ERs in bankruptcy court and divorce court. We ask it in prisons. We ask it in ICUs. We ask it uh, looking for children who are lost, looking for family members who are lost, and in counseling and in all the events that bring in pain and suffering. Why is God doing this? What is God doing? How am I going to get through it? And today we're going to explore this, all right? Martin Bashir, um, main news anchor for MSNBC, was interviewing a pastor after a tsunami and earthquake had hit Japan and 15,000 people had died at that natural disaster. On national television, he started with this question as he was interviewing a pastor. He said, help us with this tragedy in Japan. Bashir says, which of these is true? Either God is all-powerful, but he doesn't care about these people in Japan, or they are... He does care about them, and he can do nothing about it. Which one is it? Is he powerful, or is he loving, or is he neither? Which one is it? After some significant squirming, the pastor ultimately replied, quote, I think this is a paradox at the heart of the divine, and some paradoxes are left left exactly as they are. And there was a laugh, and they moved on to another subject. But you know, suffering and pain are no laughing matter. The question, is God all-powerful or is he all-loving, has been around for a long time. And the the big idea is if he's all-powerful, then he cannot be loving because he allows human suffering. Because a loving God would not tolerate pain. That's the argument. Or the other side, if God is all-loving, then he cannot be all-powerful because he would do something about it. So since suffering exists, either God is loving but impotent, or he's all-powerful but calloused. Which one is it? Is he impotent or is he calloused? Over the years, this question has played out in my life, in college hangouts and coffee shops and living rooms and ERs and in ICUs. This This has been a huge question. This is the question that theologians call theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. A word that points to the justifying God, the justice of God in light of suffering. The question, the theological question and study of evil. How can a good, loving God allow evil? In some sense, this question has kept theologians and philosophers up all night. But the issue of suffering and evil 
isn't just for the intellectually erudite. The main question is a question that all of us explore. Matter of fact, George Barna conducted a national survey stating, if you could ask God any question and he would give you an answer and you would understand it and could accept it, what would that question be? And the main answer, the top response represented by 17% of the respondents was this question. So in light of Barna's study, this is the question the world asks. Why would God allow suffering? Why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's very personal. It's very personal because you've been there. I've been there, right? The reason we ask this question is we've all experienced pain and, que- and suffering. I've, as a pastor for 20 years, I've been at the, at the bedside of many a saint who's passed away, some tragically, some beautifully. I've been at a wreck in Corsicana, Texas. I arrived on the wreck at the scene of a, of a wreck and watched a mother bleed out and die, leaving two young kids. I've been at the ICU seeing the last beats of an 80-year-old heart and a two-month-old heart. I've had the question asked of a woman who's had upwards of 15 uh, missed births, right? Uh, this, this, This body that won't keep the child and the child keeps being Uh, stillborn or there's a a miss of that birth. I've walked on the streets of Mexico after massive flooding, people living in squalor, whether there's flooding or not. I've walked in barrios in Mexico, people living in cardboard houses and, and houses made of pallets. I've been in favelas in Rio de Janeiro and people saying, don't go in there. Even the people around us, don't go in there. It's run by this drug lord. It's not safe. But we knew a believer who was there doing ministry and we walked in anyway and saw people living in incredible destitution and despair. I've been on the streets of Nepal, Kathmandu, Nepal, and seen after the earthquake that hit uh, 10 months before, seeing just still people living in rubble for 10 months, right? I've been the one-year anniversary of 9-11, ground zero, walking the perimeter of a huge hole, asking the question, What on earth, God, are you doing in the middle of all this? I've been at the New York Holocaust Museum and the Jerusalem Holocaust Museum, standing at the Jerusalem one, thinking, what on earth am I looking at here? How could this savage attack on six million Jews be allowed? This senseless murder, how could this have had any sense? Where in the world does this pain come from? So none of us are exempt I've experienced it personally. I've seen parent, grandparents go through cancer, uh, death. A, a 37-year-old cousin of mine come up with sinus cancer and die, leaving uh, young, young children. I've been on the uh, flip side of this in my own uh, pain and suffering from back injuries and uh, other issues. We all experience it. Is God loving or is he powerful? Which is it? Back to Bashir's question, which is it? Is he loving or is he powerful? The short answer biblically is yes, he's both. Listen to these verses. The Bible clearly says that God is powerful. He is called almighty 53 times in the Bible. Psalm 147, 
147 verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. Jeremiah 32, 17, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand, your powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I could, I could show you numerous verses that say that. Nothing is too difficult for God. God is powerful. Nothing is too difficult. He made it all there is and he sustains it by his strong right arm. He is powerful and God is good. The Bible clearly teaches that God is all good. He is loving, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is steadfast in his love. First Chronicles 16, verse 34, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 86, five, for you, Lord, are good, ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Psalm 145, verse nine, the Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. So the Bible clearly teaches that God is all powerful and all loving. Then how do you explain evil in the world? Let me say, it is really hard to understand suffering. Because when it comes knocking at your door personally or somebody near you or somebody that is far away, it's still a struggle. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12. He said, now we see these things imperfectly. I think he's addressing this issue of suffering and struggles and persecution. There was, there was a mess in the Corinthian church. He's looking at the mess in his own church and he's, maybe you've been there, you've been a part of a church that was a mess and you're like, how, how can this be in the family of God? And he says, we see things per imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. And then though, when we get to heaven, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. So, so on this side of heaven, he says, we're gonna see through a fog. You may be able to make out the edges, but you're not gonna be see, able to see it sharply. And so entire books of the Bible are given to answer this question. This is a common question answered and asked through the whole Bible. You get the book of Job. I love the fact that we have the book of Job. In chapter one and two, we see that there's a villain in your story. Why does suffering and pain exist? It's because God and you have an enemy. It's not a yin and a yang. It's not eternally good and eternally evil. It's not that. We see in chapter one and two of, of the book of Job that Satan has to ask permission to come into God's presence. And then he has to ask permission to touch Job. And of course, there's this satanic wager. Job is blessed. Job has prosperity. And he says, Satan says to God, he worships you because it's good for him. You let me touch him. You let me take from him. You let me hurt him and he will curse you because he sees you, God, as a, as a divine Santa Claus who gives good gifts. And if you let me touch him, he will curse you because he only serves you because it does him good. That's what the book of Job is about. And God says, I'll take that bet. You're going to regret. I'm the, no, that's a song. Never mind. I'll take that bet. And he won't curse you. And of course, he doesn't. Job doesn't curse God. But he asks questions. I love that we have the book of Job. Because Job, like David in the Psalms, asks questions. And they are hard questions. And if you're here asking hard questions, God can handle them. And he has real answers. So let's ask those questions. Let me say at the very beginning that I want to, there's some obvious questions we're not going to answer. Right, because they're obvious. 
The one that we seem to, seem to struggle with here in America is unique on the planet because we're so prosperous. And we say and we think all prosperity is good, all hardship is bad. Is that true? Is all prosperity good and all hardship bad? No. Some of the most cheerful people I've ever met are people shut-ins, dying in hospice care. And they are cheerful. Some of the most pitiful, complaining people have zero reason to complain by the world standards. They have everything and they're miserable. Some of the most blessed people on the planet are the poorest. Some of the most cursed people on the planet are the richest. So no, we don't have to answer that question because yes, hardship can be good at times. It teaches us and prosperity isn't always good. It can be a curse. So I think of this as really two questions. When I spend time, this is one of the most common questions I get as a pastor. Why am I going through this pastor? And I say, well, it's really two questions. The first is, why does any suffering occur? What are the reasons the Bible gives? And I would just encourage you to memorize these five. I've rattled them off in many a, a hospital and many a funeral home. The reason that the Bible teaches that suffering happens is at least fivefold. Number one, it's because of, obviously, sinful choices. Sinful choices. James 1, verse 14, 15 says, But to each one, is, when he is tempted, he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, it brings forth, anybody know? Death. Right? We're going to study Romans 8. In verse 2, it says, The Spirit the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is a dynamic of sin and death in sinful choices. That's number one. You make a sinful choice, you reap what you sow. Then there are some that don't appear sinful. They're just bad choices. I prayed all, first week of school, I prayed over my kids every, every day, whether over them or in the car driving to work, I pray that they would be wise and they would be kind. That's a great prayer to pray over your kids, that they would be wise and they would be kind. If I could have anything, that's what I want for them right now. Wisdom means that you don't make bad choices, but of course, we're all foolish at some level, and we make bad choices. I decide to go down this road, and there's a low water crossing, and then I say, I got a big truck. I can go through the low water crossing. It floods my truck. I sweep on down the river, right? Bad choice. You know, when it comes to natural consequences, I often, as a parent, think that that is the best tool I can give to my kids is to not try to get in the way of some of those natural consequences. They say, I say, don't touch that, don't touch that. They make a beeline to it and they touch that. I say, don't swing that bat in the house. You're gonna hit your sister. They swing that bat, they throw that ball, they hit their sister, they break something. This plays out in my family a lot, right? Uh, it happened recently this last year with a flashlight. I said, Audrey, don't swirl that flashlight around on its cord. You're going to break it. Audrey, don't use that flashlight as a, as a hammer to hit something. You're going to break it. Audrey, don't do that. You shouldn't use your flashlight that way. I, Audrey, what did I tell you about the flashlight? A few hours later, she comes to me crying. Her flashlight's broken. Do I replace it? <laughs> Not on your life, right? She needs to learn that lesson. It's a universal lesson of reaping and sowing. In the same way, God allows his children to experience the natural consequences of their actions. The results are often painful, but God is not obligated to deliver us from our wrong choices. Taking responsibility for your actions instead of blaming God is a step towards maturity. And we need that. Galatians chapter 6 is a great place to go to see that reaping and sowing. 
Number three, we live in a fallen world. And in this, in this reason, cause of suffering is encompassed the darkness of demonic forces, satanic forces, as well as the corrupted world. It was a beautiful, unpolluted lake. And then Adam and Eve got a hold of it and the world turned polluted and our bodies decay. And there is pain and suffering through natural disasters. All that is in this fallen world. We're gonna study that here in Romans 8. That will be one of the points that Romans will mention. Number four, this is obvious, for righteousness sake. We don't like that one. We don't, we don't want that tutor, but I guarantee you that is the greatest tutor of anybody who we would consider in this church mature and godly. It came through the crucible of pain. And yes, the problem of pain gives us question, but the purpose of pain gives us maturity for righteousness sake. Listen to these verses, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Even because of the extraordinary character of the revelations, therefore so that I would not become arrogant in having this revelation, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. I asked the Lord three times about this. He would depart it from me, but he said to me, my grace is enough for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So God allows you to be weak so you can be strong in him. There is a lie going on, a wrong quote of a verse that says God won't give you more than you can handle. That is not in scripture. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, he won't give you more temptation than you can handle. No, no, God's in the business of crafting in a God-mastered man by laying on heavy all the junk that helps you recognize that you're not the master of your soul. You're not the captain of your fate. God is. He's in charge. 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not think it is strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's suffering, that his glory is revealed, and that you also be glad with exceeding joy. For righteousness' sake, you suffer, and you teach your kids to suffer, and in the process of that, you become more mature, you become more dependent, you become more broken. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. So he wants to make you humble. How else is God gonna make you humble? Think about that. Think about Christ's likeness. How do you learn patience? How do you learn, let's talk about forgiveness. How do you learn to be a forgiving person? That's Christ-like. You wanna be Christ-like? You gotta learn forgiveness. How do you learn forgiveness? Hurt. People hurt you, you hurt people. You learn to forgive, it's all part of the process. We love the result, we don't like the curriculum. But for righteousness sake, God says, he allows suffering. And then it's a mystery. Now, this final one, the fact that Job is going through all this stuff, and for many years in his life, he doesn't understand what's happening to him. It's a mystery. We know. We see behind the curtain. But Job does not know why these things are happening. You know, I know oftentimes I suffer as a sermon illustration. That's why I'll never preach the book of Job. Right? I'll preach the book of Job, and I'll have sermon illustration after sermon illustration. I won't do that to my kids, if you know the book of Job. <laughs> Suffering becomes an illustration for others. And we don't know that in the middle of it. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, doesn't know that when his brothers are selling him into slavery, when he's being locked up and, 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 and thrown into Potiphar's house as a slave and then locked up in the Pharaoh's jail, he doesn't know why. And so here's the truth. When I'm talking to people about their suffering, I don't venture a guess as to why they're suffering. There's five reasons, right? five reasons I don't venture a guess. I don't know. But here's what I do know. And this is the rest of today's message. I know what God wants to do through suffering. So why does suffering occur? Five reasons. 
Why does God allow it? That's the ultimate question. Even Jesus, right, as he is dying on the cross in that terrible hour on the cross, appropriately asked, why am I forsaken? Why have you forsaken me, God? The awful mystery of his own suffering, he doesn't even understand it. So I'm not going to venture a guess as to the very cause, but I can venture a guess as to purpose. Because when suffering occurs, there's purpose. There's redemptive purpose. Faith did not lose its hold on Jesus. For when he asked, why, oh God, have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That bitter cry owned God as his God. So this first question of why does suffering occur, these five, that's a moving target. But this next question, we have conviction. So if you're here and you're an outsider, you were invited by somebody, here's where we can guarantee you God is working and what he's doing, right? And it has to do with purpose, redemptive suffering for purpose, and it has to do with perspective, right? So, so to say it uh, another way, when, it, when, when you look at Romans chapter 8, th- this context is the great inheritance of the Christian. The book of Romans is eight chapters, and he has made a crescendo, kind of a summit, like Mount Everest summit. He's, the, he's gotten to the top, and he says, we have the Spirit of God living in us. We have the mind of Christ pushing us and helping us make decisions. We can be an instrument of righteousness, not an instrument of unrighteousness. And in verse 14, 15, 16, and 17, he says, we are children of God, and we stand to inherit, and we are part of his family, and praise God, and lest... Lest there be a prosperity gospel twist on this passage, look at the end of verse 17. It says, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. See that? Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him. In Greek, there's a number of ways to say if. This is a first-class condition. It should be translated since. Since we suffer with him, look what it say, so that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus was lifted up in his suffering, so are you. See, see, the prosperity gospel says, here's what, if you've never heard of that phrase, what it says is, if you're sick and you're poor, it's because you don't have enough faith and you're in sin. That is a horrible demonic teaching. The prosperity gospel is a blight on the Christian church. It is one of the worst things that's being said. And in this text, he he could, have said, he could have stopped there and we would have thought maybe that, that things, you're the royal line of, of Jesus Christ and things would go well with you. But did they go well with Jesus? Did they go well? Think about any of the great men and women of faith. They went through suffering in order to grab the crown. They went to the cross before the crown. And he says here that this prosperity is, is not a part of the identification process. It's actually suffering that is a part of being identified with Jesus, and it's promised. So that's the context. This new way of the Spirit involves suffering, if indeed we suffer with Him, purposeful suffering. You know, when it comes to the Christian church, I like Roger Starbuck's quote. He said, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. And if you're not playing and through suffering and bad struggles within your family and other issues. If you're, not, if you're not middle of that, you're not in the middle of where Christ is working. He works in suffering. You know, I love, I love the C.S. Lewis quote. Um, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to a deaf world. 
Said another way, it's kind of an irony, pain really is the shortest route to God. If I were to have the rest of today and talk about a number of your stories of your spiritual journey, I guarantee the curriculum of spiritual greatness would be through pain and suffering. It really is the shortest route to God. Your wilderness maximizes God's worship. That's on the screen, right? I think we have that. Put that on the screen. Say that with me. Your wilderness maximizes God's worship. Say the next line too. This is said another way. Your pain trains your perspective. So the believer doesn't focus on today's suffering. Look at the next verse. The context is suffering. We saw that in verse 17. Verse 18. For I consider that this suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whoa. Your pain, your pain trains your perspective so that you don't focus on today's suffering. You look forward to tomorrow's glory. J.B. Phillips in translating and giving commentary on this passage says, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. I'm not impressed. Nobody's impressed when you get that new car or that new house and you say, isn't God good? Look at my... No one's impressed, but I am absolutely, to the core of my being, impressed when I go into Brian and Kendall Allen's room where their newborn baby, only born with two chambers, is is fragile as fragile can be, and they're praising God for the time they have. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, that great verse in Daniel that says, here talking to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, you can throw us into the fire, and we believe that God would deliver us out of the fiery furnace, but if not... If we're not, we're still not going to worship you because God is to be praised. When a child is barely alive and dying and they say, God is good, maybe it's through tears. It has been. That's beautiful. That's glorious. That gives perspective. I'm on tippy-toe waiting for what God's going to do. Now, I think the best way to walk through this text in the next 15, 20 minutes is to point out the word groan. Right, you're going to see the word groan three times. And if that's your emotion and you don't have any other words for your marriage issues or your money issues or your health issues other than groaning, you're in good company. Paul feels that. Let's read. Let's read verse 18, verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Who's the real deal? Who's not? How do you tell someone's a phony or not? Fire, pain, suffering. How do your children, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, how are your children going to know that you are the real deal? They're not going to become followers of Jesus outside of the witness of the people of faith around them. How do they know you're the real deal? You go through hard times, you praise the Lord, you grow stronger, you give a witness, and they say, I want what he has. I want what she has. That's what that verse means. For the creation, all of creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Satan, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its slavery and corruption into the freedom of the glory, heaven, the new heaven of the children of God. It's bound up glory, and we just, the creation is waiting for it all to come right and come real. This is a commentary of what went wrong in Genesis 3, where it was a, a pure lake. It's a beautiful lake. Now it's polluted, and it's toxic, and it's groaning to get back to the place of beauty. God makes beautiful things out of the dust, and the dust yearns for that. Look at the image here. 
Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. That's why a miscarriage is so horrific. You, the pain is worth it because of the baby. And those of you that have struggled through that, you know that that's not how it should be because all of creation is going through pains of childbirth and there is a baby coming. Yes, there's pain, but it ends with a baby. It's not useless. The universe is now in a fallen state. It's corrupted, it's toxic, it's polluted, but it's going to be redeemed. It's redemptive suffering. It's like childbirth. There is a path, but it's a path of pain. Verse 23, and not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we're the, as Paul's writing it, they're the first believers to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. In other words, believers are not immune from suffering. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. I think that should be translated, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. Question. Is the Christian salvation complete? Is a Christian's salvation complete in Christ? Yes. Second question, is a Christian's salvation fully enjoyed now in Christ? No. There is this in our bodies, that we were not made for this side of eternity. We have eternity in our heart, and it is the other world that only appetites can be satisfied there that we have in us. And so we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our body, the second coming of Jesus. Verse 24, for in hope, have you noticed that's been mentioned a lot here? For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what is already seen? In other words, we still have hope. We still have groaning because this isn't our planet. This isn't the one that we've been saved for. God is going to have to come in person, in Jesus Christ, in the second coming, and we hope for that. If this is all there is, why is there all this hope and need? Because when we get to heaven, there won't be hope. We'll have it already. We'll have the inheritance. We don't have to want it. It'll already be ours. Meanwhile, we wait and we hope, verse 24, for in hope we have already been saved and hope what is seen, hope uh, for what is already seen. There's no, no hope there. But if we hope, verse 25, for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So we hope and we wait and we persevere. The Greek word here is hupomone. It means to stand up under, hupomone, to stand up under it. We live through it. Hope mentioned four times. What do we hope for? Titus 2, the, the blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus. Next verse. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groaning, too deep for words. There's the third groaning. The groaning of the Christian, the groaning of creation, and the groaning of the Spirit. I love this. Did you know that the Spirit groans with you? Of course, we have a sympathetic Savior who suffered as we suffer and is able to be our high priest in heaven. Jesus has ascended so he can intercede for you, but he sent his Spirit to the church and the Spirit of God in you when you have no words for what you're going through with your child. You have no words for no answers. It's too late. It's too much. It's too little. It's gone on too long. And those, those twos build up in the Spirit in words that you cannot express is right there groaning with you. But I love the picture here. 
In English, we can't add a lot of suffixes and prefixes to our words, but in Greek, you can. And this is one of the, one of the craziest words in the, in the Greek Bible. All right, you ready? It's the word sum anti-lombano. Sum means with. This word for help here is one little word, A-T-L-P, but it mean, in Greek, it's sum anti-lombano. That when the Spirit helps you in His groanings, sum, if you've taken math recently, you know sum means with or some, means with. Anti is opposite on the other side of. So with on the other side of and lumbano means to lift, to carry. So here's the weight of your bad marriage, your bad health, your, your troubled child situation, your finances, and the spirit in the middle of all that suffering, you're being persecuted at work. He helps you lift it. You're over here with one bar and he comes soon with, on the other side of, anti, lumbano. He grabs the weight of your struggle and he helps you lift it. And there are some of you who've gone through horrific things and everybody praise God as you went through it because where did your strength come from but of the Lord? Where it was said of you, only God, only God could have got her through that. And you've been there. Only God could have allowed you to move through that because you had the spirit groaning with you. Isn't that good? You know, let me apply this. When it comes to the groaning of creation, right, it is, according to this verse, an encouragement for you, its purpose in your life, in all of creation, believer and unbeliever alike, it's to make you, force you to look to the future, to look forward to the end of the world. Whenever there's great trials and tribulation, movies and books are written about apocalyptic times, times when, when it starts over, when things begin, and the Christian has the answer. We have a whole book called the book of Revelation that tells you how it ends. Creation is groaning for a baby to be born, and it's another world. It's the second coming of Jesus. So when you're in that hospital, when you're about to go into that divorce court, or whatever suffer, suffering you're going through, it makes you want the next life. And that's the purpose for creation. It makes you want to look forward to the end of the world. It's not a useless thing. Paul compares it to a woman in labor, giving birth to the second coming of Jesus. What about believers? Believers are not immune. When you are groaning and the stuff you're going through, it forces you to, it creates in you a drive to look forward to what suffering brings. I've heard so many of you go through hard times and say, I just want God to use it. I just want my kids to see it. I want to I I not cut and run. I don't want to be seen as a phony. I, don't want, I, I want to be bold for my faith in the middle of this chemo. It drives you to a better witness. It's an integral part of creation. It's an inter, integral part of a Christian's life. Suffering is purposeful. At the Nicene Council, an important church meeting in the fourth century, there were 318 delegates Christians who showed up to this church council, fewer than 12 of the 318 had lost an eye, lost a hand, did not have a limp on a leg because of torture for their Christian faith. 318, only 12 were exempt, so that's, do the math, 306 had the scars of persecution, and the world paid attention to those guys. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 gives his laundry list of suffering. And he says it was, it was exactly what, the God, what God wanted in his life so he could be a witness 
It enhanced his credibility. It enhanced his influence. You listen to a guy who says, I have worked much harder than most, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. One night at one, I spent one night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger with false brothers. I've labored and I've told and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold, I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure and my concern for the churches. Wow. And Paul says, God used every ounce of my suffering to, to pursue and to extend the borders of his kingdom. You know, I was thinking of this book when I read that passage of scripture. Listen to this, this is the middle of the book. He says, if you child of God are upon a bed of illness, M.R. Dahan, if you are being troubled by pain or discouragement, Remember that God will always use our suffering for his purposes. Our suffering silences Satan. Our suffering enables us to glorify God. Our suffering makes us more like Christ. Our suffering makes us appreciative. And ultimately, our suffering teaches us to depend on God. That's beautiful. In a, creation, in a Christian's life, they look forward to what suffering brings. And it comes. He turns beautiful things, makes them out of the dust. The Holy Spirit groans. Now here, when it comes to the spiritual movement of the Spirit in your life, this pushes you to look forward to supernatural help. When there is creation groaning, you look forward to the end of the world. When earthquakes happen and floods happen and rains come, torrential rains, you look forward to the end of the world. When your own life groans, when suffering comes into your own life, you look forward to what it brings to your witness and what it, what it allows you to teach the people around you. But when the Spirit of God inside of you is groaning, you know that spiritual help is on the way. Spiritual encouragement, spiritual power. On the wall of his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque, and it had Isaiah 48, verse 10 on it. He said, I have chosen, this is what the plaque said. The verse says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. It is no mean thing of God to be chosen of God. He isn't being mean to you by giving you the affliction you have. We are chosen, not in the palace, but in the furnace, all on his wall. In the furnace, right, that's where he says in this plaque, he says, beauty is marred, fashion is destroyed, strength is melted, glory is consumed. Yet here, in the furnace, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choices. It's in the furnace that you see the supernatural help, the supernatural revelation, the supernatural aid. This is where men become godly men and women become godly men, godly women. Is there any other shortcut? There's no other shortcut. Pain really is the shortest route to being godly. It's all about perspective. You know, as I think about this text, I, there's so many songs that highlight it. Amazing Grace says it best. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. Nothing like a little dose of pain to give you perspective in life. And we don't fight against it. We don't complain and, 
are bitter about it, we embrace it. Like a bee turning pollen into honey, we are a peculiar people as Christians. And spiritual power comes with the time of spiritual need. Babby Mason said, God is too wise to be mistaken. He's not mistaken in your life. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Amen? Your wilderness maximizes God's worship. And so we worship while we wait. We wait for the revealing of the sons of God. Who's the real deal and who's not? Your pain trains your perspective. Let's pray. Father, what we do with our hurts is one of the most important things about us. The greater the groan, according to this text, the greater the glory. And the pain really does end in a baby. So I don't know all the ins and outs of the pains and aches of the people of this room, but I know they have them, and I know they're larger than them. And so they are, they, they are required, they are drawn, that is necessitating them to turn to you. And the greater my weakness, the greater your supply. That is a huge, huge notion. Freedom from discouragement, Lord Jesus, is often found through an eternal perspective. So I pray that those with marriage issues, parenting issues, financial issues, health issues, pains of relationships strained and discouragement because of rejection, discouragement because of false accusation, that they would gain an eternal perspective from hearing this. Suffering shouldn't discourage us because one day the groaning will end. One day the groaning will begin. The glory will begin. And yes, you could end all the suffering. You could, you absolutely could. Jesus, you proved that. Jesus, you took a little aerosol can of anti-pain and suffering and you sprayed it on a lame man and he got up and he walked. Then you sprayed some on a blind guy and he could see. Then you sprayed some anti-pain and suffering on Lazarus and he came out of the grave. Jesus, you put down that can and you said, now you know I can do it. That's for the future, but it's not for now. And then Jesus, you said, in the meantime, you're with us. Will, will you end pain and suffering, God? Yes, absolutely. The whole Bible points to that end. It's all about perspective. It's all about where we're looking. And I pray that wherever the pain is, that the perspective would push us to look to the end of the world, look to what suffering brings, and look to the supernatural help that's already on the way. In Jesus' name, amen.